you will, join me in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, we are going to look at verses 11 through 16 this morning as we continue through our series in the book of Galatians. If you're using the blue Bibles in the back of the seat, it is page 973. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. The title of our sermon this morning is The Hypocrisy of Fearing Man. And our key words are opposed, hypocrisy, and law. During the reign of Joseph Stalin in communist Russia, there's a man named Alexander Zolzhenitsyn. And he wrote numerous uh, things, but he, he really focused in on the atrocities under Stalin's dictatorship. And one of Zolzhenitsyn's most chilling stories was about a birthday party for comrade Stalin. It was in this small, out-of-the-way town that not very many people knew about. And Stalin was nowhere to be found, but still, there were many speeches extolling his greatness. There was much applause all throughout. Without thinking, the mayor of the town stood up and exhorted all of his fellow people to offer one last cheer for the evening in honor of Stalin. And the applause continued for minutes without stopping. And everyone continued to clap and to clap. And as they did, they were growing weary. But no one would dare stop clapping. And as the labored applause wore on, an old man in the front collapsed in exhaustion. So finally, the mayor allowed his hands to drop. And instantly, all of the noise died down and the evening was over. But the very next evening... The mayor was arrested and sentenced to the gulag. No charges were spoken against him. And as he stepped into the train, leading him away to his final fate, a party official came and whispered in his ear, never be the first one to stop clapping. Intimidation and fear are powerful motivators in life. And some of the most brutal tyrants in the history of the world have used this to their advantage. It's a common tactic used by individuals and groups, and most often not to the extent of Stalin. Nevertheless, it's it's likely that all of us can think of situations where we dared not be the first ones to stop clapping. We may have not cared for the one we were clapping for, or indeed we may have wanted nothing more than to not Uh, do that at all. However, we were motivated by fear, by a desire to be counted among the many, to be on the uh, to, to, to be on the inside of the right people. So we're not sent off to the gulag. So we clap and clap until someone else takes the fall. But in the end, we're just hiding amongst the crowd and considered to be with them. In the early 1800s, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard observed people whose lives consisted um, of hiding from others. His contention was that rather than building walls between themselves and others to separate themselves, they simply hid behind masks. In other words, instead of retreating and being unseen completely, most people 
are going to just hide in the wide open, to hide in plain sight. But there comes a time when the mask comes off. He wrote this, Do you not know that there comes a midnight hour when everyone has thrown off his mask? Do you believe that life will always let itself be mocked? Do you think you can slip away a little before midnight to avoid this? Or are you not terrified by it? I have seen men in real life who so long deceived others that at last their true nature could not reveal, could not but reveal itself. I have seen men who played hide and seek so long that at last in madness they disgruntingly obtruded upon others their secret thoughts which they had proudly concealed. Kierkegaard was right. Every day is like Halloween. Putting on a mask is a daily ritual, a regular part of waking up for most of us, just like brushing our teeth and putting on our clothes. But the masquerade is not so festive, is it? Underneath the mask are people who are terrified of being exposed for who they really are, fearful that the mask and all of their other covering will be removed. But to some extent, all of us live with this fear, and it is a fear of man. All of us wear masks. None of us want to be found not clapping. Depending on the circumstances, depending on the people we're around, we may have different masks, and they may change from one situation to the other Some may wear more than others, and they may be more concealing than others. However, if we're honest, we can admit that there is a fear within us at many points in our lives, in many relationships and circumstances where we pull out our mask and we put it on and we work really hard to keep everything veiled so that it doesn't come off until we have deemed it's the right time. But Kierkegaard reveals reality. Eventually, the truth of who we are and what we are will be revealed. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be 10 years from now. But somehow, some way, the game of hide and seek will end for all of us. And then we shall stand before God in the complete and total nude. Does that feel your heart with fear? Are you so concerned about what others think that in most cases you'd be willing to compromise something that in other circumstances you will gladly and loudly take a bold stance on or against? You see, fearing man results in a deadly hypocrisy. And by definition, the result is compromise. The dictionary says it is the state of pretending to have beliefs, opinions, virtues, feelings, qualities, or standards that one does not actually have. The refusal to reject those things we oppose so that we will be accepted. Or standards that we will take on and remain silent about in the face of opposition so that we will not be mocked or ridiculed or disliked. The temptation to pull away from an important position because it causes tension. Now there are undoubtedly times in life where our minds will be changed. There are issues that aren't worth fighting for. Sometimes the best response is silence. But we're not talking about those things. We're talking 
about when we clearly communicate a hypocritical attitude by taking or opposing a specific position because we're afraid of the results. We don't want to disappoint others. We don't want to have them think differently about us. We don't want to get sent to the gulag. So we go along to get along. And we clap and we clap and we clap until someone else has the courage to put an end to the madness. In our passage this morning, Paul recounts a time when he confronts the hypocrisy and the fear of man in Peter. Peter thought himself safe. Peter thought he could hide behind a mask. Peter thought he could clap among the powerful and respected so he wouldn't be forced out or disregarded or disrespected. You see, Peter's hypocrisy was not so much about being right with God, but rather staying right with God. And it was a false idea that we've seen thus far, Paul confronting with great clarity and forcefulness. And I hope we will see the hypocrisy of Peter in such a way as to show us the tendency of all of our own hearts to do the very same thing that he has done. Men and women are so often concerned about themselves in the eyes of others that they fear man and as a result engage in hypocrisy and compromise. In many ways, it's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, but Paul really brings it into much clearer focus now. So let's read together, beginning in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, the first point we want to consider this morning is that a fear of man and hypocrisy go hand in hand. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Now, Paul explains to us in verse 12 that prior to to the coming of certain men from James, Cephas or Peter, most often ate with the Gentiles. Those men who came, they were most likely Christians but they were in all likelihood former Pharisees. And so they were very traditional in how they saw their arrangement of things. They were very Jewish in how they saw their things. So they weren't too pleased with how they saw Peter acting among the Gentiles, almost like a pagan in their eyes. But what we eat and whom we eat with says a lot about who we are. Peter, of course, is a Jew. 
Keeping the old covenant ceremonial dietary laws was one way for the Jews to show that they belonged to God. One commentator writes, in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. You remember how people acted when Jesus had a meal with those who were not Jewish? When he sat and shared a meal with sinners and tax collectors, everyone was enraged. They couldn't believe a Jewish man, let alone one who was teaching in the synagogues and who people were following and listening to along the way, that he would sit and eat with unclean people. But for the early Jewish Christians, this was no small problem that they had to deal with. In fact, it's one of the larger issues early on, particularly in a place like Antioch. There would have been around a half a million people in Antioch, and about 10% of them were Jewish. So the Christian church that arose in Antioch was quite an amalgamation of various cultures and ethnicities. Antioch is actually the first place where the believers were called Christians. Everyone saw this strange new gathering of people, that their practices and their relationships especially were very different from everyone else's, and so they created a new name for them. But this became the first place where the church had to deal with the issue of fellowship. Remember, last week we looked at Paul's journey to Jerusalem to give a progress report, to make sure that the other apostles are preaching the same gospel that he was preaching, and also to work through the issue of whether or not the Gentiles who were becoming Christians had to be circumcised. And the answer we saw was absolutely not. But now what about food? If the Gentiles belong to the church, which the apostles certainly agreed that they did, Was keeping dietary laws and restrictions necessary for them? And could the Jews eat with the Gentiles? We learn in the book of Acts that all of the events surrounding the Jerusalem Council and the apostles uh, meeting together, that they made it clear that everyone that the Jews, uh, that all, all of the Jews could continue in some of their practices if they desired, and likewise the Gentiles, their own ethnic and cultural practices if they desired. However, they needed to be informed by the word of God, and there was a relationship now that never existed before between the Jews and Gentiles because they worshiped the same Christ in the same church, saved by the same gospel. And let's cut to the chase. We all know that the early Christians were Baptists, So they had a lot of meals together. Did the ethnic Jews have to sit and eat together with the Gentiles? That's the question. Previously, they'd been forbidden by Jewish tradition. One of the books of the Jews taught them to not eat with anyone who was not a clean Jew, for their works were unclean. So how could these new Jewish Christians keep kosher 
If they're going to eat with Gentiles who ate the wrong foods, prepared in the wrong way, and some cases that were offered off to gods before they came. The apostles dealt with the theology of their fellowship with the Gentiles. However, as is often the case, the theological issue doesn't always make an easy way for application. There's still work to be done. But remember, it was Peter himself who received the answer to this from God in a vision. As Peter was praying before lunch one day, we read in Acts chapter 10, he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds in the air. In other words, this sheet that came down that he saw in his vision was full of animals that the Jews had been forbidden to eat. And then a voice from heaven says something remarkable. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have neither eaten anything that is common or unclean. But the voice told him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so from then on, they could eat all the bacon they wanted. And they could give God all the praise and the glory and the honor because of it. Bacon by itself, bacon on hamburgers, bacon on pizza, bacon wrapped shrimp. The options are limitless and God has made it so. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Now, Through this vision that Peter had, God is preparing Peter to take the gospel to a Gentile. Immediately afterwards, he's called to a place called Caesarea, where he baptized a Roman named Cornelius. And Peter learned a vital lesson from all of this. He said in Acts chapter 10, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Later, he faced public criticism for his actions. And he said, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Eventually, Peter realized that this wasn't just about Gentile evangelism. This also had a lot to do about fellowship. And that's what we see here in verse 12, that Peter had no issue eating with the Gentiles, sitting at the table with them. In other words, his really shocking solution, and I assure you, it doesn't hit us in the way that it would them, but this was a shocking solution to the problem of table fellowship. His solution was to consider the uncircumcised Gentile to be no different and to not be separate, but to be equal. And because, all of this is because of the barrier that's removed by the gospel. Peter joyfully sat and ate with the Gentiles, something which Jews simply would not do. Fellowship wasn't based on Jewish rituals. And the basis for Christian fellowship was distinctly Christian. It was distinctly Christ-centered, distinctly gospel-centered. 
True fellowship was not divided down the lines of ethnicity. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were united in him and by him, period. So we know quite a bit about Peter and his character from the scriptures. He was a man who was quick to jump to conclusions. He was always eager to be the first one to speak, to make bold promises and claims. He was a leader in the church. In fact, Jesus gave him the nickname, The Rock. He was a godly man. He was a zealous man. But Peter, like you and I, was prone to fall into various kinds of sins. And some were more evident in his life than others. You might recall that it was Peter who told Jesus that he would follow him on to death. And yet it was Peter who, when confronted by an angry mob who's about to kill Jesus, denied ever knowing the Lord, saying that he had nothing to do with him. And in our text this morning, we see again that Peter is denying something as central as the truth of the gospel because he is fearful of the opinions of others. He has a weakness. He was a people pleaser. And if we're honest, I think most of us would admit that we might often struggle with the same thing as well. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So we see the Bible is setting these two things up, the fear of man versus the fear of the Lord. Here we see Peter fearing man. And Paul tells us that Peter wanted to hide what he was doing when these men came to town from Jerusalem. Perhaps they caught him in the act. And instead of standing for the truth of the gospel, Peter withdrew. He counted himself among those who were like the Judaizers instead of being identified with his brothers and sisters who were Christian Gentiles. He was afraid of what they would think. What would be said about him? Would this hinder his relationships? Would they respect him anymore? I don't assume that Peter stood and made some grand announcement about his not eating with the Gentiles anymore. Rather, it was probably a very subtle action. He just didn't go and do it anymore. One day he was sitting with them, enjoying fellowship together, and the next day he was at another table without them. And we know from what Peter went on to be and to do that he hadn't changed his mind whatsoever in terms of what the gospel had accomplished in the Jew-Gentile relationships. So it wasn't a matter of changed convictions for Peter. It was outright hypocrisy because he feared man. He feared man and as a result he acted hypocritically. One writer writes, how often our message and our methods in Christian service are dictated by the reactions, real or imagined, of others. As a result, the gospel waters are muddied, their clarity lost, their sparkle diminished, and their taste compromised. So Paul tells us in verse 11, because of this compromise, that he did something about it. He confronted Peter to his face. Now, let's just say that we were together at a fellowship meal, It might be a little bit awkward if a fight were to break out in the midst of it. 
We're all eating our food, and then we hear a little commotion on the other side of the room, and we look over, and we see Paul face-to-face with Peter. And then we hear a little commotion rising up, a little back and forth. It's unexpected. Ever since Paul met Peter in Jerusalem, they were friends. They were brothers. Indeed, they had just, Paul had just recounted his time with him in Jerusalem and how wonderful it was and the fellowship they shared. But now here they were. But Peter was in sin. Peter was acting hypocritically because he was intimidated by other men. So instead of standing for what was right and true, he cowered in fear. He denied the great truth of what the gospel had done to unite man with man, regardless of their ethnic pedigree. And so Paul stood up to him. There's something else very important here to remember, and that's where all of this comes in the flow of Paul's overall letter. Remember, Paul is proving to the Galatians here that he is a genuine apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is sort of his final argument to them to show that he is. Remember, he argued that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ made him an apostle long before he had met any of the other apostles. And then he explained his trip to Jerusalem, his meeting with all of the other apostles, that they were preaching the same gospel that he had preached. So now, just in case there was still any doubt whatsoever, Paul recounts the time that he stood up to one of the more notable and recognizable apostles when he got out of step with the truth. In other words, Paul had the authority to rebuke another apostle, and he did. And it produced results. But the central issue is what's most important. Paul's rebuke surely was something along the lines of saying, Peter, God does not have fellowship with you on the basis of your ethnicity and your culture. You know that. You were not justified because you observed the law. You were not justified because you were born a Jew. God did not give you fellowship on the basis of these things. He grants you fellowship on the basis of Christ and him alone. So how can you turn and have fellowship with other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, on the basis of ethnicity and ceremonial law-keeping? Because Peter was a people-pleaser. And when we're concerned about pleasing men instead of pleasing God... It's like we have a little handle on our backs and those people can come and grab hold of it and use it to push us and to pull us in all different directions. Brothers and sisters, are there people in your life who have that kind of control over you? You're willing to compromise what God has made clear to gain their approval. You're a different person in front of them than you are others because you want them to see you in a different light. Most often, these are people who don't even know they have that kind of power because you've simply granted it to them. They don't know any different. Now, sometimes for Christians, this can be difficult. It's not easy to be a Christian sometimes. It can lead to uncomfortable situations. It can lead to uncomfortable encounters with other people. It can be challenging for us to stand for what God has called us to in the face of opposition and the possibility possibility of ridicule and being shamed or even being persecuted physically. But brothers and sisters, the answer is not to fear men and to be carried away into hypocrisy. 
By God's grace, we can break the handles off our backs and be set free from the control of others. When we are set in our lives to please God instead of man, we recognize the great truth of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, the answer, of course, is no one. Brethren, God absolutely does want us to serve our neighbors. But God-pleasing service is to be done out of a love for our neighbors, a love that gives for their real needs, not out of a self-love that can't see real needs because we're too concerned about what everyone thinks about us. Love God, and out of a thankful obedience to his word, you will walk in loving service to your neighbor instead of a slavish fear and hypocrisy because you want them to think the best of you. So you see, a fear of man and hypocrisy go hand in hand. The second thing we should see this morning is that one's hypocrisy tempts others to stumble. We see this in verses 13 through 14. Peter's conduct was so obvious to the church that it became a temptation that they also fell into, a temptation to do what Peter himself had done in denying the gospel out of a fear of man. Paul tells us that all of the Jews in the church at Antioch acted hypocritically right alongside Peter, even Barnabas. Barnabas was another highly regarded man in the church, and Peter led him astray. Brothers and sisters, this serves for us an important reminder that the ultimate authority to which we submit and the ultimate standard to which we conform is not any man, no matter how great, no matter how godly that man is, but only God himself. There are many examples throughout the history of the church, of those who have been highly regarded, who, in the wrong understanding of the scriptures, in their sinful actions, in their careless words, have provided egregious examples for others to follow. And in doing so, have given excuse to those who are tempted to stumble and to follow suit. Those who aren't discerning, those who aren't careful to compare what they see and to hear in the word of God. One Puritan writer comments, nothing more absurd can be imagined than the sight of uninformed and ignorant people who think they can get away with anything because they have seen those whom they honor and revere as demigods doing the same thing. This is why Paul confronting Peter to his face in public was important. The others within the church needed to hear what Paul had to say. Not because every sin... Or every time we have some twisted theological concept has to be trotted out before everyone all the time. But because this was a matter of central gospel importance. The fellowship of the church was going to rise or fall on this issue. And notice in verse 14, Paul tells us their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And as an apostle, Peter was to be held to a higher standard. He had an enormous responsibility when it came to leading and teaching the church in preaching and formulating the foundational doctrines of Christianity. And besides, this was a public offense 
It was clear that the, the church could see what had gone on, and so a public rebuke was in order. John Stott explains the situation that Paul walked into. He writes, Peter knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus was the only condition on which God would have fellowship with sinners. But he added circumcision as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have fellowship with them, thus contradicting the gospel. If anyone had known about the discussion that Paul has already mentioned that went on in Jerusalem, they would have thought that Peter retreated from what was agreed upon. Quite simply, this was a matter of talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Peter's actions stood in direct contradiction to the gospel. And even worse, others were following his example. In Paul's rebuke in verse 14, he's telling Peter, you are asking the Gentiles to Judaize. You're asking them to be Jewish, but they're not Jewish. They're not accepted by God on the grounds of being Jewish. Why are you so concerned about them adopting Jewish customs and practices to be accepted? Now, we know for a fact that Peter didn't believe that to be true. But again, he's acting hypocritically. By refusing to eat with the Gentiles, he was communicating that he thought they were unclean. And the Gentiles were getting the picture that if they wanted to be Christians... They had no choice but to live like Jews. Brethren, our behavior, our actions can and often do undermine the truth of the gospel. It's quite possible that as Christians, we can believe the gospel with all of our hearts. We can profess the truth of the word of God with our mouths. And yet with our conduct, completely deny the truth that we hold so dear. Now, this isn't a consistent pattern of our lives, but we can take snapshots of our lives and see that it's true. Philip Ryken tells a story that comes from the history of the Southern Presbyterian Church prior to the war between the states. In those days, it was customary for Presbyterian elders to give their parishioners tokens signifying that they were eligible to participate in the Lord's Supper. Sadly, in some churches, African slaves were not given the customary silver token, but one made of a lesser metal. Nor were they allowed to receive the Lord's Supper until all of the white church members had been served. This was a divisive and prejudicial way of handling a sacrament that God intends to signify our union together in Christ. Whether the elders believe the gospel or not, their actions clearly denied it. And this is the same sort of thing that was going on in Antioch. There was a division down ethnic lines. And we may not assume our actions may be as blatant as that, but there truly is a blindness in hypocrisy. We don't see it in ourselves. We need to ask the Lord to show us. We need to ask ourselves do my friendships and those I hang out with most often and the dinner invitations that I give and the partnerships that I form communicate anything about how I understand the gospel? How about as a church? Do our partnerships with other churches, our relationships with other Christians say anything about how we understand the gospel? 
Now, I assure you, all of this says something about what we think about the gospel, but what are we saying? Do we display a unity in Christ that's unhindered by all of the things that we as humans like to put in the way or our, our actions out of step with the gospel? These are important and worthy questions to ask ourselves, lest we compromise the truth for the sake of personal comfort, because we fear man, because it's easier to be a hypocrite sometimes than to walk in the truth. And that leads us to our final point this morning, and that is that a hypocrite forgets the gospel. Verses 15 and 16. Now, what I don't mean by this is that someone will forget the content of the gospel. Many a hypocrite can tell you what the gospel is and how it is effectual in the life of a person to bring them to saving faith in Christ. But when someone acts hypocritically, they forget the application of the very thing that they have believed. We, who are Christians, have been set free from the bondage to uphold anything externally that we might be saved by God. Paul reminds us in verse 16 that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And by works of the law, no one will be justified. And yet... The problem with Peter in this moment and the problem with this group of men who came to Antioch from Jerusalem was that they were trying to add to the gospel. The gospel proclaims that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Jesus has done everything that God has required for our salvation. There is nothing else that we need to do to gain forgiveness for sins, to enjoy union with Christ, and to have an eternal hope of everlasting life except to trust in Jesus alone. This is the gospel of free grace. And anyone and everyone who truly believes this gospel is a Christian and is our brother or our sister. But on some level, remember, all of us come into the Christian life out of a covenant of works. We've spent our whole entire lives thinking that we're required to earn and to gain and to inquire. But then we encounter Christ and we're told, stop trying and rest in me. Stop working to gain my love and acceptance and forgiveness and receive it instead. Brothers and sisters, when we act hypocritically and assume that our salvation and the salvation of others is dependent on something more than this amazingly good news, we forget the gospel. We forget its power. We forget its goodness. We forget the freedom that is granted to us in it. People will always add something. Christians always want to find something to add because we have a hard time resting in the truth that God has done it. And when we add, we are quick to look down on those who don't do those things that we have added, whatever it is. And that's what's going on with Peter. But Paul stood up to Peter. He was speaking to him as a recovering Pharisee himself, one whose life was defined by works prior to Christ. And he tells him, brother, you and I were in the same boat. And here we find ourselves again. 
But now, instead of believing our works save us, we know that we're saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let us never forget it. Let us never act contrary to that. These Gentiles, these are your brothers and sisters. If you just look around this room, these are your brothers and sisters. I'm sorry. All of the Christians around the world, the people of God who worship in spirit and in truth, these are your brothers and sisters, all who have been justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And having been justified, we are adopted as God's children and have been blessed with the privilege to call out to God, Abba, Father. We are united in Christ, and along no other lines should we be divided. Becoming a Christian requires our admitting that we're not good enough to earn God's favor because we're not good at all. The Galatians were tempted to earn God's favor by following the external functions of Jewish religion, and that may be our temptation. There may be temptations in many other ways. Going to church, reading your Bible, taking communion, giving to charity. These things are great, but they don't get us into heaven. Not even becoming a martyr for the cause of Christ will qualify to get us into heaven. There is no way to be made right with God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, Now the true meaning of Christianity is this that a man first acknowledged through the law that he is a sinner for whom he is impossible to perform any good work. If you want to be saved, your salvation does not come by works. But God has sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He was crucified and died for you and bore your sins in his own body. Anyone, friends, some of you here aren't Christians, but I'm saying to you this morning, anyone who truly believes this is a Christian. Repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and experience true freedom in Christ. And we learned this morning, too, that anyone who is a Christian has a life that looks like they're a Christian. And that includes sharing fellowship with all who have been saved by this very same grace of God as us in Jesus Christ. A beautiful illustration of this comes from the life and ministry of William Carey, the great Baptist missionary to India. Indian culture was dominated by a rigid caste system under which members of different social castes were not permitted to have anything to do with the other castes. Things like sharing a common meal. Carey's real breakthrough came after seven years of not seeing any gospel conversions. The very first convert was a man named Krishna Pal. And the first thing Krishna did after he became a Christian was he rejected his caste and he came to sit and to eat dinner with the missionaries. And one of Carrie's co-workers said, thus the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. Who shall shut it? The chain of caste is broken. Who shall mend it? The door of faith is open anywhere and everywhere that Christians accept one another on the same basis that God has accepted them, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful 
as we consider our own lives, our own brokenness, our own proneness to want to divide, to devour, to separate. We're grateful for the reminder from your word that the grounds of our unity are in Christ. That the faith that we share with your people throughout the world is a faith that should unite us and not divide us. And yet we recognize in our own lives our sinful tendencies. We recognize our own hypocrisies. We recognize our own temptation. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that we not forget the gospel in its application every day of our lives. That all of the implications of the gospel be worked out within us. That we not be putting off your people. That we not act hypocritically as we saw in Peter's life today. But that we remember that we are in the same boat as all of our neighbors in need of Christ. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've come from, they have the same need that we have had. To look to Christ, to repent, and to believe. And so, Father, remind us daily that Christ is enough, that we don't need to add to the gospel. We don't need to break union and communion with one another because together we have union with Christ and communion with you. Father, thank you for your word and for this reminder. Help us to go boldly forward as your people walking in the truth of the gospel, not forgetting it, not compromising it, but loving and cherishing it alongside all the others who call on you. Abba, Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.